Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Nathan Purdy is from Ireland and a wonderful evangelist. This sermon was preached at Pleasant Valley Brethren in Christ Church in 2015 and it's titled, Our Weakness is Christ's Strength. I know you will enjoy this wonderful message. And on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, and on. Good evening, everyone. Good to see you uh, all out again this evening. Thank you so much uh, for being here and very thankful for the help uh, that the Lord has been giving and for the fact that he has been speaking to us. I sometimes pray before preaching that the Lord will take to the microphone that really matters, and that is the one Uh, that can be heard in the very depths of our hearts and in the depths of our consciences, because that's where we need to hear from God. We can hear from people, and it it can engage our minds. Sometimes it can even engage our emotions. Uh, But where we need to be hearing from God is in our hearts, in our consciences, and thank, uh, so thankful to Him uh, for speaking do want to change direction a little bit tonight from where we have been. If you have your Bible, we're turning in the Old Testament to the book of Judges. The Old Testament book of Judges and chapter number 6. Judges chapter 6 and beginning to read together at verse number 1. Judges 6 verse 1, and if you have your Bible with you this evening and you are able, would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Judges 6 verse 1, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza, And left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. 
For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Jumping down to verse 14, it says, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he, Gideon, said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid, and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him under the oak, and presented it. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and lay them upon this rock, and pour out the broth, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand, and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there rose up fire out of the rock, and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. We're thankful for your word that reminds us again that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. And tonight as we come before you, Father, we are deeply aware that we need the help of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your spirit would move upon our hearts. We pray that he would speak to us. We pray that he would open our hearts and our minds to understand what your word is saying. We pray in Jesus' name, Father, that you would be greatly glorified by pouring out your spirit upon us again this evening, for it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned uh, last evening that uh, the reason why I came to America from Northern Ireland, where I was born, was to attend Penview Bible Institute. And uh, I can remember very clearly uh, the day that I left Northern Ireland to come here. I'd never actually been on an airplane before. I'd never been to Penview before, obviously. I had applied. I'd been accepted. I don't know if I'd even spoken to anybody from Penview. It had been correspondence by email. And so it's obviously a very big decision, and I can remember going to the airport with my parents and uh, saying the final goodbyes and uh, us all uh, wiping away our tears and me going through everything in the airport and sitting on the airplane ready to leave Ireland to come here to America. Now, as that airplane was going down the runway and taking off into the air, you can imagine that there were many thoughts going through my mind. There was many thoughts about leaving my family and the fact that I was closing 
the chapter of my life that I had uh, lived to that point and was starting a brand new chapter with no real idea of how it would read. And realizing I was coming to Penview and, and having some uh, basic stereotypes in my mind of, of what America would be like and, uh, and the thoughts, the kinds of thoughts that were going through my mind as I'm on the airplane, in the air, leaving my home and my family and coming to Penview were thoughts like this. If I had a higher IQ, this would be easier. If, if I was smarter, then I would be so much more confident of, of what things would be like when I got there. I mean, no idea of what the professors are going to be like, no real idea of how difficult the studies were, but starting to feel this real uneasiness that, that, that it would be so much easier if I was smarter. I mean, a lot of nerves and some anxiety and just flying into the completely unknown, but I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm nervous, but if I was smarter, this would be easy. Or realizing that, that I uh, was, still am, a rather introverted person, very quiet, basically, was my personality is. And, and the stereotype over there about people in America is that they're all very confident and, and find talking very easy. And, and I'm thinking, if, even if I didn't have a higher IQ, if I had a different personality, this would be easy. If I was far more outgoing, far more extroverted, found conversation far easier, then I wouldn't be nervous and I wouldn't feel so inadequate for what lies ahead. Thinking things like even if I'd, you know, a different personality, I think even if I looked different, this would be easier. Just, just in that moment, feeling incredibly vulnerable that I'm flying into this unknown and feeling so inadequate for what lay ahead. And then, of course, with it being on an airplane and going to Bible college of all places, I get into a conversation with the guy sitting next to me and, you know, what are you supposed to do when you're on an airplane going to Bible college, supposed to try to speak to this person about Jesus? But again, I got into a conversation. He was actually an amateur golfer from Ireland going to compete in some uh, tournament here uh, in America. And I'm thinking basically the same things. If I had a higher IQ, I wouldn't hesitate to witness to this guy. If I was smarter, I wouldn't hesitate. But what if he asks me a question and I don't know the answer? We'll end up worse off at the end than we were at the beginning. If, if I was smarter, a higher IQ, I would do it. Or thinking, again, if, if I had a different personality, if I was more extroverted and find conversation easy, of course, at, at the drop of a hat, so to speak, I would just get into a conversation and would be one of those people, just the conversation would just ebb and flow. And then before we know it, we'd be talking about Jesus and he'd be praying and, and he would have got converted right there in the airplane. But my personality is different and I'm not an extrovert, so it's hard. Or thinking again, you know, if I look different, here he is, an amateur athlete, and I'm not an amateur athlete. You know, if, maybe if I had, you know, big bulging muscles or looked like, you know, something impressive or had the personality of a politician, then all of that would be easy. But in order for me to serve God and, and witness to this guy, I'm me. And because I am me, I feel inadequate. 
Now, I don't know if you being American ever feel anything remotely like anything that I have mentioned, if it's even hinting in the direction that you've ever thought in all of your life. But here is something that the Lord has had to try to teach me, and I think that is so staggeringly obvious in our Bibles that, that it's hard to miss, but we sometimes do. If you ever have that sense of weakness... If you ever have that sense of inadequacy, almost to the point where you are crippled by your sense of inadequacy, the message of the Bible is that sense of weakness does not disqualify you from ministry. In actual fact, it qualifies you for ministry. If you know what that sense of weakness, that sense of inadequacy, that sense of, oh God, I am not enough in and of myself. I can't do this by myself. That sense of inadequacy does not disqualify you from ministry. It qualifies you for ministry. And one of the clear illustrations in the Bible that we have of this is given in the life of Gideon about whom we read in Judges chapter 6. Now in those verses that we read at the beginning, we meet Gideon at a time when things for Israel are at a really, really low ebb. Whenever we meet the children of Israel in Judges chapter 6, it tells us that every year they would work very hard to plant their crops. They would work very hard, be very diligent, and put in all of that effort, and they would plant their crops. And right around the just before harvest time, the Midianites would come over the horizon. It says that they, they are like grasshoppers. They are hard to put a number on them. They come over the horizon, and they come through the lush valleys of Israel, and they begin to strip those fields bare of everything that there is and they go through the valley strip it bare and they leave and go into the sunset but in their wake there is devastation and humiliation and the people of God are left wondering how will we eke out an existence for another year and so the Bible says that this happens not once but for seven years God has delivered the children of Israel into the hands of the Midianites and they will work hard planting their crops and the Midianites come over the horizon, go through the valleys, off into the sunset but they leave devastation. And as a result of that the children of Israel are humiliated. They are filled with terror and they're working hard to even make ends meet. So what it says that they did was instead of planting their valleys in the harvest, or their, planting their crops in the valleys, they withdrew into the mountains and they started to live in caves and in dens and in strongholds in the mountains. Now I think you can imagine what it must have been like to be one of the children of Israel if, if you can't try your best. You're living in the mountains in a cave trying to eke out an existence and your blood is boiling at the thought of the Midianites coming and driving you away from your homeland, your farms. Might have been in the family for generations, but you're not able to be there because they are so powerful, so mighty and so many that if you stayed down there, they would do the exact same thing again. Come through and leave you on your knees broken. And as you're sweating and trying to come up with an existence in the mountains, you are scared. Whenever it comes harvest time and the Midianites come over the hill, will they come up into the mountains and will they find you? 
Will they find the little bit of existence that you have and take even that? And so as it gets to this low point for the children of Israel, it eventually tells us, we read there that they finally began to cry out to God. Look at verse 6. Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and they cried out unto the Lord. And we see that God begins, as it were, to look for a man in Israel to be their leader. God begins to look for the one person in all of Israel that he wants to choose to use as the person to bring them deliverance out of the hand of this innumerable number of Midianites like grasshoppers who just come marching their way through devastation in their wake. God wants a man to bring them deliverance. Now imagine this. Imagine that God put you on a committee to choose the man. You live back then and and you know we can't even go out there and shake our fist at the Midianites because we'd be trembling in our boots. We'd be terrified. It would be foolishness. And so you get together in a committee and you say, who will be our leader? Who would you choose? Chances are some people would say, let's get the smartest guy we can find and let him be the leader. I mean, if you get somebody smart enough or a couple of people smart enough, surely they can come up with something, some way that we can overcome the Midianites. Some people might say, let's get the most wealthy person and maybe if we put them in a position of leadership, they'll use their wealth and bankroll this thing and get us some weapons. At least we'll be able to go out and make a fight out of this. At least give it a try. At least let them know that that we're in this for the fight. Or maybe you would have said, let's choose the, the, the wisest. Maybe a man who's a military experience. He's got all the medals. He is the man with the strategy and the experience. Let's make him the leader and let him lead us. And we will follow him and we will do our best. But did you see who God chose? God didn't choose the smartest. Didn't choose the most wealthy. Didn't choose the man with the most experience. God chose Gideon. And it says in verse 14 that when God speaks to Gideon, or verse 15, that Gideon says unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor, or some people would prefer, my family is the poorest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. See what Gideon's saying? God, I actually think that you've got the wrong person. In all honesty, God, you are God. But I think you've got the wrong person. We're from the weakest clan in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house, and you're asking me to be the leader? Gideon's instinctive response is, God, I am not adequate. God, I am not fitted for that kind of a thing. And what we know about Gideon is that he asked for all of these signs. We read one of the signs. In all honesty, imagine God asked you to do something and you say, God, I would like a sign. And he says, go out into your backyard and take a little goat and take some broth and some cakes and set them on a rock. And an angel will show up and he will touch the rock with the tip of his staff and fire will come up out of it and will burn the, the little goat, will burn the broth, will burn everything. You say, God, if, if you did that, I wouldn't doubt for a moment. 
mean, I would be all in. I mean, fire, literal, actual angel, fire coming out of the rock. But Gideon is so aware of his inadequacy. You say, I know what inadequacy feels like. And Gideon says, I am so acutely aware of my inadequacy that that I still need another sign. So, he says, we will put out a fleece and in the morning if it is wet and the ground is dry, then I will know. So he puts it out. The next morning he goes out. The fleece is sopping wet and the ground is as dry as dust. You'd be saying, you know, forgive me God for having asked again, but you've convinced me. But Gideon basically says, forgive me, O God, but my sense of my own inability is rooted so deeply in my heart that I need another sign. So he says, I'll put the fleece out, and if it is dry and the ground around it is wet, then I will know. And the next morning as he's walking out, the water is squelching under his sandals, and he gets to the fleece, and it is perfectly dry. And Gideon begins to realize, God does actually want me in all of my weakness, in all of my inadequacy to do this. Well, when God does whatever he's going to do, guess who's not going to take the credit? It's not going to be Gideon. Heard a powerful illustration from the life of David Livingstone. Of course, he was a missionary in Africa, and I have been told that there was a custom in Africa where that when you got to the border of a new region, that there was a chieftain over, that before you could enter and move freely in that area, you had to meet with the chieftain himself. And when you met with the chief, here's what would happen. You would put all of your possessions on the ground and the chief would look through them and he would pick whatever he wanted and take it to be his own and he would give you something to replace it. So David Livingstone gets to the border of this area, meets with the chief and he lays everything that he has in his possession at the feet of the chief. There's a bag of clothes, there's a bag of books that he used, and there was a goat, which milk he used because he suffered uh, from a lot of ill health and goat milk was really helpful to him. He lays it all in front of the chief, and the chief looks through it all, and the one thing that the chief decides to take is the goat. And in all honesty, he gives David Livingstone a stick in its place. And Livingstone emerges from that moment and he is in a dialogue with God. He's in an argument with God. He's saying, God, how could you allow the chief to take the goat, the thing that was so necessary to me, so vital for my health, and you allowed it to take the goat and he gave me a stick. What do I need with a stick? It is said that for several days, Livingstone had this running argument with God. In fact, he gets into a conversation with another local, and the local says to him, when he hears all of Livingstone's complaints with God, Livingstone, the, the, the local says to him, that's not just a stick. That is the chief's scepter, and wherever you go in this region, just show them that stick, and you will be given immediate access, and they will listen to you every word that you say, because you have the chief's vital approval. And Livingstone realized the one thing that he thought was most useless to him 
in God's work at that moment was actually the most useful thing that he had. He thought it was useless, but in the providence of God, it was useful. Here's a question. When God asks you to do something and you feel that crippling sense of inadequacy, why is that? What comes to your mind? And what happens if the thing that you thought was most useless in that ministry, God gave you because it was the most useful thing that you needed? What if your personality, God has given it to you on purpose and you say, if I was a different, but God says, I will use your personality to do this work. And the thing that you thought was most useless, God said, it's most useful. And so in this passage, we find that God has chosen a man who will not trust in self. And whenever God does, whatever he's going to do, Gideon will not emerge with the credit. Gideon will not take the glory. It will all go to God. Watch what God does next. He has found a man who will not trust in self. And now he takes this man and he asks him to deliberately remove anything that is sinful. So that when God works, nobody can say it was that thing actually that brought us the victory. No, they will all be forced to say it was God and God alone. God asked Gideon to remove an altar that had been erected to Baal, this god, this idol that they had been turning to and worshipping. I some time ago read an illustration from a pastor in New York City. His name is Jim Cimbala. It's an illustration that I find very powerful. He says, there was one Sunday night at the church he was pastoring early on, when he was so depressed by what he saw, even more what he felt in his spirit, that he literally said, I could not preach. He was so discouraged and broken with how things were in his church, that he says, five minutes into the sermon, I began choking on my words. He said, tears filled my eyes. He said, all I could say to my people was, I'm sorry, I can't preach in this atmosphere. Something is terribly wrong. I don't know what to say, but I can't go on. And if we don't see God help us here, I don't know. And he couldn't get any further. He put his head in his hands at the pulpit and he sobbed. He asked people to come to the altar. His wife pled, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. And the Spirit of God moved into that service and people began to make confession. And it was the beginning of something very unique and powerful in that church. And afterwards the pastor said this, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. The first step, he writes, in any spiritual awakening is demolition. 
We cannot make headway in seeking God without first tearing down the accumulated junk in our souls. Rationalizing has to cease. We have to start seeing the sinful debris we hadn't noticed before, which is what holds back the blessing of God. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit and quenches his power among us. And in Gideon's life, God says to Gideon, I want you to tear down. I want you to obliterate the altar to Baal. In fact, it was because they were turning to Baal that they'd lost their strength and their power in the first place. And it's why the Midianites were able to have victory in the first place. And God says, before I can bring deliverance, I need you to tear down Baal so that when I give you the victory, the word on the streets is not, Baal, give us the victory. It's God Give us the victory. And I don't think we can imagine how difficult it must have been for Gideon. Some people think that it was his dad who may have been a priest to in this religion of worshipping Baal. And his dad might have erected it. But whenever they discovered that it was down and that it was Gideon who had done it, Gideon would have been in danger of his life. And so for Gideon to have the courage to say, God, I do not trust anything about myself and I'm not going to trust in anything sinful. I'm going to tear it down must have taken a lot of courage. But God's saying, listen, what I'm doing here is I'm clearing the table. Whenever I move, there's only one person getting the glory and it's not Gideon and it's not Baal. It's God. You think... That would be a really good time for God to work right there. You know what's fascinating? God's not done clearing the table yet. Find a man who wouldn't trust himself. Find a man who wouldn't trust in anything sinful. And now God even removes the thing that they could subtly place their confidence in. Very well known, there's this massive army shows up to confront the Midianites. Gideon as their leader, and God says to Gideon, if there's anybody here that is a little bit nervous or scared about going into battle, tell them that they can go home. Do you know how many people decided to go home? 22,000. Can you imagine being Gideon at this point? You're standing and you know the Midianites, every time they come over the horizon, they're innumerable. They're like grasshoppers and I've got 30,000 men and I need every last one of them in this battle. But God says, send them home if they're scared. Send them home if they're afraid to be in this battle. And you stand and you watch with the sweat pouring off your face as 22,000 men make their way over the hills and the valleys back to their houses and you're left with 10,000 men. You'd be saying, okay guys, let's Get on the road. Let's get to the battle before God decides that we've still got too many. Now God is removing what Gideon could subtly have trusted in. In fact, listen carefully to what God says. In chapter 7 and verse 2, the Lord says unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Why? He says, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand has saved me. God's saying, if you go out there with 10,000 men, you know what's going to happen? Whenever I give you the victory, the men are going to come back, you know, pumping up their muscles and wearing their medals and saying, we actually are great soldiers after all. We, we, We are just... 
you know, the salt of the earth soldiers and 10,000 of us, we can go into battle against this massive crowd and we can win anyway. So God says, there are too many. I don't want you trusting in the subtle thing and stealing the glory. So he says, have them come to a river and if they drink one way, send them home. And if they drink another way, keep them for the battle. As Gideon is going through this crowd... And he's saying, go home, 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 stay. Go home, go home, go home, go home, stay. Go home, go home, go. He's saying, go home so many times that by the time he's done, he has 300 men ready to fight. And now God says, let's go. What has God been doing? He has been removing the subtle things that they could put their trust in, the subtle things that could steal his glory. And now that he has the table cleared, whenever God works, Gideon's not getting the glory, Baal's not getting the glory, the Israelite army is not getting the glory, it's for God. John R.W. Stott was an English uh, preacher. He tells a time of whenever he went to preach in Australia, It was the night before the final meeting and he received word that his father had died. He was heartbroken and overcome with grief in no real frame of mind to preach. And in addition to his grief, he was starting to lose his voice. Here's what he said. It was already late afternoon within a few hours of the final meeting, so I didn't feel I could back away. I went to the great hall and asked a few students to gather around and pray for me. And they did. When time came for me to preach, I preached on the subject of the broad and narrow ways. I had to get within a half an inch of the microphone. He said, I croaked like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use the inflection in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. Then when the time came to give an invitation, there was an immediate response larger than any other meeting during that mission, as students came flocking forward. He said, I've been back to Australia about 10 times since that, and on every single occasion, somebody has come to me and said, do you remember the final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? I do, I reply. Well, they say, I was converted that night. God had gotten John R. W. Stott to a point where John R.W. Stott couldn't even trust in anything subtle, not the inflection of his voice, nothing, and God worked. And so in our lives, God chooses people and he uses them who don't trust in themselves, chooses and uses people who will not trust in anything sinful, and he chooses and uses people who will remove even the subtle things that they could trust in. Why does he do that? So that he can get all of the glory. You say, maybe Gideon's an exception, but think about Moses. The beginning, Moses is biting, you know, desperate to be used of God, spends 40 years in the backside of the wilderness, and when God comes and says, Moses, I want you to go and lead my people to freedom, Moses says, God, please use somebody else. I can't talk well whenever God wants a king of his people we know that David isn't even brought by his dad to be an option he has to be sought in the field 
Whenever Paul is being chosen and he writes to us in the New Testament, he says, God hasn't chosen the mighty things of the world. He has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. Why? That all of the glory might go to him. And when God sent his son to our world, he was born in weakness. He lived in weakness and he died in the abject weakness of the cross But through that weakness, he conquered sin and death and hell. The fact that God uses weak people is how he works so that he can get the glory. Do you know what our problem is? It's not that we're too weak. It's that we're not weak enough. I'd like to share with one concluding illustration that I heard at IHC several years ago. Attorney Gibbs was there speaking from the Christian Law Association. He told of a pastor that had called him to tell him that a law had been passed in his area to prevent him giving out gospel tracts. Gibbs, when he heard this, thought it was a little strange, so he called the attorney general from where this pastor lived to check if such a law had actually been passed. The attorney general told him that uh, the law had been passed, and he told him that this guy, this pastor, had been given out so many tracts that they really just wanted to slow him down. They said that they'd never seen anybody like this guy The attorney general told Gibbs that the guy was like Superman. He was giving out 400 tracts every day. The attorney general told him that where they were, people thought that going to church was enough to be right with God. But this pastor giving out the tracts was telling them the church couldn't save them. They needed a personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, the attorney general told Gibbs that a preacher in that area had been converted through the ministry of this pastor. When Gibbs got off the phone with the attorney general, he said, I really want to meet this pastor. I really want to meet this guy who is known as Superman and who they've passed a law to slow down. So he called and arranged to go up, got on the airplane, flew up to that area, gets off the airplane, and he meets the guy that the church had sent uh, to meet him at the airport. The man was hunched over, so hunched over that he could hardly walk, walked with a shuffle sideways. His hands were numb and all curled up, and he walked sideways, shuffling along very slowly. This guy told Gibbs when he met him in the airport, he said, feel free to go on to the vehicle and I'll catch up with you. He says, you can see I'm a little slow. Gibbs said to him, so someone from your church uh, decided to send you here to meet me? He said, does your pastor, Superman, know that you are here? The man who walked with a hunch and had curled up hands and only walked sideways said, no, I am the pastor. Gibbs replied, you're Superman? The man said, you can tell that I'm damaged goods. My whole life, no one wanted me. When teams were being picked, I'd always be left last. No one wanted me on their team. 
But when God saved me, he put me on his team. He wants me. He gives me power to do that. Isn't that powerful? Here's a man who realizes in the core of his heart, I am weak. But that weakness does not disqualify me. Because my weakness is an opportunity for his strength to shine. My weakness is an opportunity for him to be glorified. And when he reaches people and changes their lives, I'm not going to get the glory he is. And when I read an illustration like this, I think to myself, what's my excuse? And even though there have been times sitting on an airplane that I've felt incredibly weak and incredibly inadequate, too often my problem is not that I am too weak, but that I am not weak enough. So if God speaks to you, and you're reading his word, and God says, do this, and you say, if I had a different personality, if I looked different, if I was smarter, If I was more this, 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 or the other, I'm too inadequate to do that. God, I think you must have meant to call that person over there or this person or maybe my sister or brother or my cousin. God says, no, that sense of inadequacy has never disqualified anybody. In fact, it qualifies them. And when you step out and obey God, the only person at the end of it who's going to get the glory is God himself. And that's exactly the point. God chooses the weak to confound the mighty that none of us should glory in the flesh, but our glory and honor and praise should go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you would take these fumbled, mumbled words tonight and somehow apply them to our hearts. Father, we have heard that quote before that says this world has never seen fully what God can do through a man who has utterly surrendered to you. Father, we confess at times that, that we think we have the ability, we think we have what it takes, and yet your word reminds us that without you, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. We pray, Father, that in those moments when we do sense that inadequacy, that you would be very gracious to us. And, Father, remind us that your strength and your power is sufficient for whatever you ask us to do. And that at the end, whenever you do whatever it is that you desire to do, that, Father, all of the glory will be yours. All of the honor and all of the praise will go to you. Father, I pray that this body of your people, this church family right here, that, Father, every single one would, Father, follow your will and engage in your mission, Father, however you want them to do it, realizing that their sense of fear and inadequacy and inability and weakness are the very ingredients that you love because you can work through that person and get all of the glory. 
We've no idea what you could do through everyone. But we believe, Father, that your name could be greatly glorified within this family, within this community, within this society. Father, by people who are weak enough to surrender to you. We remember the words of Hudson Taylor at the end, I think, of his life when he said that God must have been looking for someone small enough, someone weak enough, and you found him and you used him for your glory. We pray, Father, you would do the same with everyone here who feels that inadequacy. Use them massively for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to